Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A plan in Britain to ship asylum applicants to Rwanda is coming to a head in Parliament today. Asylum is tightly circumscribed by international law, and attempts to send it offshore just keep failing. But that isn't stopping many governments from trying. And is it safe to say that the era of the car is coming to an end? Well, according to our correspondent, possibly. He selected a few books to convince you not only that it's happening, but also why it might be a good thing. First up, though. Universities pride themselves in being hubs of debate, places where students can push the boundaries of academia and thrash out political arguments. But since the outbreak of war in Gaza, some worry that such debates have crossed a line from intellectual inquiry into outright anti-Semitism. It's perhaps no surprise. Following Hamas's October 7th attack, the bloodiest in Israel's history, anti-Semitic incidents have been on the rise globally. Spikes have been reported in Britain and France, and in America, the number of incidents in just the 40 days following the attacks amounts to one-third of last year's total, according to the Anti-Defamation League, an advocacy group. The apparent rise in anti-Jewish sentiment at U.S. universities in particular has triggered congressional leaders to take action, reigniting old arguments about who can say what on campus. Three presidents of elite universities in America, from University of Pennsylvania, from MIT and from Harvard, appeared at a congressional hearing a week ago that was looking into the rather alarming rise in anti-Semitism on American campuses. Daniel Franklin is an executive editor at The Economist. And it didn't go well, to put it mildly. And in the aftermath of that, one of these presidents has resigned and the position of at least one other has been decidedly shaky. So how did we get to this point? Well, the background is, of course, the war between Israel and Hamas and the heightened tensions that that has set off, not least on American campuses, with a number of incidents of physical violence against Jews and also of vandalism. So there was a five-hour, very gruelling hearing of a House committee on education to look into these issues, and it was particularly very persistent questioning of Elise Stefanik, a Republican congresswoman that proved highly embarrassing for the university leaders. 
So Elise Stefanik asked the presidents if calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their codes of conduct and constitute bullying and harassment. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? Now, the answers that they were giving were very much in line with university codes, which are themselves aligned with First Amendment rights. It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual. But they singularly missed the emotion of the moment. It wasn't really a court of law. It was a public congressional hearing. And they got the common sense of it and the public relations part of it disastrously wrong. Take me through what happened after the hearing that went so poorly for these presidents. The hearings, and particularly uh, Lee Stefanik's questioning, went viral Well, it wasn't just that it went viral, it was that some very serious donors threatened to withdraw their support, and so it very quickly escalated into a a very major issue for the universities, and the reaction was very swift. Liz McGill, the president of University of Pennsylvania, first of all apologised. I want to be clear. A call for genocide of Jewish people is threatening, deeply so. And then subsequently resigned. It looks as if Sally Kornbluth, by contrast, the president of MIT, is reasonably safe. She's received strong backing from her university. Claudine Gay of Harvard also came under pressure. As I speak, it looks as if she's going to survive in her job. A whole lot of things come into play in her particular case. How so? Well, she was appointed only earlier this year as the first black and only the second woman president of Harvard, and she's a specialist in race relations. And so she has a lot of defenders who would be appalled if she were, as they would see it, hounded out over this. But at the same time, it leaves Harvard and other institutions open to the accusation of double standards and inconsistencies in their application of freedom of speech. And I suppose the deeper background to all this is that these issues have already been fairly toxic and highly disputed question for universities and in the political arena as well. So might this continue to play out in the political arena? You can be pretty sure that this is going to stay a very live political issue in Washington. The House has launched an inquiry into anti-Semitism. It plays into a sensitive wedge issue in the election year where conservatives are very critical of what's been happening in elite universities and on campus. They are very much wary of what they see as bias against conservative views in such universities which tend to lean decidedly progressive and where they feel that the rules on freedom of speech has been applied inconsistently and in a lopsided way. And so could those rules around freedom of speech now be applied differently? I think it'll be another reason to have a bit of self-examination and a reckoning, but it's a hugely complicated issue for universities to handle. And we've seen how very quickly on both sides of the argument, people can get extremely angry and hound out professors, hound out faculty, stifle freedom of speech. And it's extremely difficult to apply these rules in a consistent way. 
I'm not sure that the heated nature of the debate is going to make that any easier, but it's certainly going to put it under the spotlight. And on an issue as contentious as this one, especially going into an election year, it would be very surprising if things really calmed down. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ori. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak faces a key test of his leadership later today. Members of Parliament will vote on his illegal migration bill, a proposed law that defines Rwanda as a safe destination to send anyone who arrives in Britain seeking asylum. Just last month, Britain's Supreme Court deemed the plan unlawful, and Mr Sunak faces a rebellion now from within his own party, the Conservatives. Some think the plan goes too far, others not far enough. But Mr. Sunak is determined to make his government's Rwanda policy happen. Claiming asylum, that's now blocked. Abuse of our modern slavery rules, blocked. The idea that Rwanda isn't safe, blocked. Mr. Sunak is the latest in a long line of senior conservatives eager to show they're in control of immigration. This is not just about making the UK a more hostile place for illegal migrants. It is also about fairness. Our compassion may be infinite, but our capacity to help people is not. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. Yet the numbers just keep climbing. Mr. Sunak's plan to simply shift all those asylum seekers to a third country might be controversial, but it certainly isn't novel. I think the main reason that the idea of offshoring asylum claims has come back into fashion is simply that the number of people claiming asylum in a lot of countries is growing very, very rapidly. Tom Nuttall is a senior editor at The Economist. We're going to have almost certainly the largest number of asylum claims in the EU this year since the migrant crisis of 2015-2016. We're probably going to break records in the United States. This is, of course, a very politically delicate area. And so governments confronted with lots of people arriving on the soil making asylum claims are trying to figure out if there's a way they can move them to another country to get those claims heard. And what is the law that surrounds all of this as it stands? It's immensely complicated, which is basically why very few countries have ever been able to make anything even approaching a success of this. The fundamental law that binds almost every country in the world is the Refugee Convention of 1951, which was expanded with a protocol in 1967, which fundamentally means that signatories have to hear a claim for asylum by anybody who enters their territory and lodges that claim. 
Now, all sorts of things are piled on top of that, but that's the fundamental point. And the fundamental principle that signatories agree to be bound by is that of non-refoulement. And what that means is that they agree not to return an asylum claimant to territory at which they're in danger, essentially. So where does this idea of uh, farming out the asylum claims to other countries, to outside a country's borders, where did that come from? Lots of countries have toyed with the idea over the years. Lots of European governments have made various attempts to strike deals with countries outside of the EU to process their claims. None of them really have got off the ground yet for various legal reasons. Inside Europe, as well as a refugee convention, there are all sorts of other laws as part of the European Convention on Human Rights, which make it complicated. Outside of Europe, the most important by far, I think, instance of offshoring is what Australia did in the 2000s with its so-called Pacific solution. What the Australians did was they struck a deal with Papua New Guinea and Nauru mainly to take in asylum seekers who hoped to reach Australia. And the fundamental principle, particularly in the second part of this so-called Pacific solution, was that if you were shipped off to one of these places, then you would never be able to go to Australia for the rest of your life. And that was meant to serve as a deterrent for people hoping to make that journey. And did it work as a deterrent? Some people say it worked in the sense that the number of people making those journeys by sea to Australia dwindled away almost to nothing. But there are a lot of very big caveats there. One is that this policy came at a tremendous cost, both a financial cost, one billion Australian dollars a year, according to one estimate, and very well documented cases, often of horrific abuse that took place in the detention centres. The second relevant point is that actually no transfers of this sort were made after 2014. And for a lot of people who have looked into this, the reason that those numbers dwindled away almost to nothing wasn't so much that people were being transferred, but it was that that actually Australia was turning back ships at sea back to where they had embarked from. In most cases, that was Indonesia. Now, that is not an option that's open to European governments, partly for very obvious geographical reasons, but also because it does look a lot like potentially refoulement, returning people to a place where they consider themselves to be in danger. So broadly, where there is a push for this, people are not trying the Australian model because it doesn't work perhaps as uh, as once thought. What is being tried? One is a deal that Italy has struck with the Albanian government. Italy will build two reception centres on Albanian soil. These supposedly will be able to process up to 3,000 migrants per month. And these are people who will be picked up at sea by Italian naval officials and taken directly to Albania. Their claims will be processed by Italian officials under Italian law. And should they be found eligible for asylum, they will be taken to Italy. Now, there are all sorts of questions about whether this model is going to work, including lots of legal questions, and a very, very tricky one, which is what happens to all the people whose claims are not deemed eligible? How do you return them? Are you going to keep them in Albania forever? Will they be allowed to enter Albania proper, i.e. outside of these centres which are run under Italian law? And these are the sorts of questions that have always bedeviled attempts to offshore asylum claims in this way. So how does the Italian-Albanian plan differ from what Britain is trying to do? So there's a fundamental difference in these cases, which I think is often overlooked. What Britain has been trying to do in its deal with Rwanda is essentially deport asylum seekers who arrive in Britain to Rwanda 
once those migrants have landed at Kigali, taken by British officials, then Britain entirely washes their hands of them and leaves them to take their chances in Rwanda. Now, this British attempt has been absolutely bedeviled by legal complexities. The deal was first struck, I think, about a year and a half ago. Not a single plane has taken off with any of these migrants. Several British courts, as well as a European Court of Human Rights, have said that the plan doesn't adhere to various statutes and various treaty commitments. The British government is doubling down on this. I think it's unlikely to succeed, but there is a new treaty between the two governments. There is an extraordinary law, a bill that the British government wants to push through Parliament that would disavow some British human rights law and mean that it would be no longer applicable to some of these cases, although they still would be subject to the European Court of Human Rights. And the fundamental point, Jason, is that we've sometimes forgotten now amidst all of this mess This policy is supposed to work as an act of deterrent. The idea is that if Britain can show that if you come to Britain as an asylum claimant, you will be shipped off to Rwanda, then for those people thinking of making those journeys in the small boats from France, they might think again and try their luck elsewhere. The problem with that theory is that there is no suggestion, no credible suggestion that Rwanda would be able to process any more than perhaps sort of four or five hundred asylum seekers a year. Last year, I think about 46,000 people made that small boat journey across the English Channel. We're talking about a one in a hundred chance of um, being deported, even if the policy gets off the ground. That doesn't sound like much of a deterrent to me. It seems that history would suggest and the present situation would suggest that essentially offloading your asylum seekers to another country, making them another country's problem, might actually just simply be too legally difficult and in some cases politically difficult to pull off. Yes, I think that's a a reasonable conclusion when you survey the history of all of these attempts. But I think the broader point, Jason, is probably that the fact that all of these governments are toying with this idea despite the manifest difficulties, that shows you just how desperate they are to try to find a way out of the asylum predicament that they find themselves in. And it does also mean, I think, that this principle that if you are able physically to get yourself across the border of a country where you wish to claim asylum, then your claim must be lodged and heard. That principle, I think, is increasingly beleaguered. You already hear politicians in some countries say that this is no longer fit for purpose. This principle that was established just after the Second World War makes absolutely no sense in an age of mass mobility and mass communication. So whether or not some of these offshoring schemes work, I think you're going to see in the future that principle of territorial asylum is going to come under increasing stress, increasing strain. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. People viewing this new 1954 Lincoln are showing unusual interest in this latest version of Lincoln. The one fine car designed for modern living. Humans spend an awful lot of time, money, and energy on moving around. How we get around kind of shapes our world. And in much of the world, and especially the United States, how we get around is synonymous with our cars. Daniel Knowles is The Economist's Midwest America correspondent and the author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Some people think that the era of the car is coming to an end, and certainly lots of people think that the era of the conventional car, the petrol-powered car that you have to drive yourself, is coming to an end. 
proliferation of not only electric cars, but ideas about self-driving cars, about new forms of public transport, about micromobility, what e-bikes and scooters might do to change how we get from home to work to play. Here is a selection of books that explain how that process is happening and to some extent why it will be a good thing. Street Smart. The Rise of Cities and the Fall of Cars by Samuel I. Schwartz. And traffic on the ones here in the New York City area. We have an accident in Brooklyn on the belt. So Samuel Schwartz in the 1970s, 1980s worked for the New York City Department of Transportation. He started at a relatively low level job in the 1970s and by the 1980s was the city's traffic commissioner. He is in fact the man who invented the term gridlock and has been known ever since, at least in the sort of niche world of transport experts, as Gridlock Sam. Gridlock Sam was a man who almost 50 years ahead of its actual implementation tried to introduce congestion pricing in Manhattan. He was an early anti-car activist in a way. He would quietly get rid of access to cars through places like parts of Prospect Park, that sort of thing. His book sort of explained some of what he did, but it's also an argument that Cities are back in vogue, people want to live in city centres, and part of that is not wanting to be so dependent on cars and on the sort of car-centric suburban lifestyles. Anne argues that this will begin to transform American cities, and that this is good. He also wrote a follow-up called No One at the Wheel, where he basically looks at the prospect of driverless cars. The two books together constitute a kind of argument for what needs to be done to make sure that American cities, cities in general, continue to improve and to make sure that self-driving cars sent around by their owners on errands don't essentially consign us to an even worse gridlock than we already face. Fighting Traffic, The Dawn of the Motor Age in the American City by Peter D. Norton. Henry Ford turned out his 15 millionth car. We knew the automobile age had really arrived. There's a kind of popular history of the automobile in which Henry Ford comes along, invents the Model T and the production line. His workers are able to buy it, and pretty quickly everybody's got a car. And isn't it delightful to leave behind horses and carts and enter into the shiny new futuristic world of the automobile? Peter Norton's history explains that it didn't actually happen quite like that. In the 1920s, as cars were really, you know, growing in number and more and more people were buying them, there was, in fact, an enormous backlash against them. They were seen as rich people's toys that were killing hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and particularly children. In the wake of the First World War in cities like St. Louis, there were monuments erected to the victims in the style of First World War sort of monuments, and particularly the children who were run over by cars. Fighting Traffic is a book that explains how this was overcome and how it was that the car did end up coming to dominate the history. But it's also useful for thinking about the future, as the sellers of autonomous cars now face a hostile public worried about crashes. Fighting Traffic shows how they might well overcome some of those problems and some of the downsides of that too. How Cycling Can Save the World 
by Peter Walker. Forget cars, let's talk about bikes. Peter Walker, a journalist for The Guardian, explains how cycling can really improve our transportation systems and make us happier and healthier. He looks in particular at places like Copenhagen and Utrecht and Amsterdam at how when people use bikes to get around in large numbers, they are healthier, they get places more efficiently, and the cities that they live in are prettier, more fun to be in, less polluted. But he makes the case that what the world needs if bikes to really take off is fewer lycra-clad road warriors. That's his description. He says that cycling in many places, particularly London, where he writes from, is an identity. It's something that you get sucked into. And in places where people use bikes normally to get around, it's just a means of transport. He makes the case for a world in which cycling is just another way of getting around. And he explains what it will take to achieve that. To see Daniel's full list of what to read to understand why the heyday of the automobile is over, click on the link in the show notes or find it in the Economist Reads section of our website where you can see book recommendations on everything from Scottish independence to espionage. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show or of your shiny new Economist Podcasts Plus subscription at podcasts at economist.com. And Podcast Plus subscribers, you can also let us know what you thought of Boss Class, our series on management. Two new bonus episodes are now available and they're well worth a listen. Trust me. Enjoy and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.